Okay, we're going to read from God's Word. Uh, so if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it, whether you're here with us or whether you're at home this morning, why don't you grab it and uh, just turn. To, it's super easy, this series. Just go straight to the back, right? It's not one of these ones where you're like, oh, no, people are going to know that I don't know where Ephesians is, right? It's not one of those series, right? We're in Revelation. Go straight to the back of the Bible, right? Uh, so we're Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 this morning. So that's Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. And this is God's Word. To the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crime. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. Okay, so it's week three. It's Revelation and the letters to the seven churches, okay? Letters to the future church as we're terming it. Hope you're getting on okay. We haven't lost you yet. I hope you're, you're kind of following. Uh, it's making sense. It's applying to life and all of that sort of stuff, okay? Uh, because as we've been saying along the way, Revelation is often one of those books that we kind of like just, just don't deal with, right? We, we like the epistles and the pastoral letters and the gospels. And, you know, we like things like the book of Isaiah and, you know, the Psalms comfort us when we read them and all that sort of stuff. But Revelation is that book that we're like, just I don't really deal with it, okay? So it's been really encouraging to hear people's reactions and responses as we've kicked off this series. And I wonder if you have ever done a personality test, right? Myers-Briggs, uh, Enneagram, Strengths, any of those. Sort of, I mean, I'm saying this to a church full of millennials. Of course you have. Not only have you done them, but you're overly interested in them, right? Most of this church are those sorts of people that goes, he's a three, right? And we're not talking about, you know, three out of ten, okay? Just, so you, just in case, right? We're talking, you know, Enneagram numbers, right? That's the sort of church we're in, right? I have no doubt that the majority of you have done personality tests of some description. Very often in work nowadays, right, they will do these kind of, these personality test things. Very often in the context of team, as they try to invest and find out maybe what a team is lacking or what it's strong at and how they might build a better team, okay? So I worked for Alpha, um, uh, HTB Alpha, which is the place where the Alpha course kind of came from. I worked for it here in Northern Ireland. Uh, and we did a, a whole kind of weekend of this sort of stuff. Do you know whenever like a church or a Christian organization says it's going on a retreat and it's the exact opposite of a retreat, right? It's like, yeah, so for the next 24 hours, we're going to dig deep into your soul. It's not going to be exhausting at all, right? So that was kind of how this went. We did these personality tests and everything with a guy called Will Vanderhart, who's uh, an author. He's a coach. Uh, he's actually also a, a vicar. He's an incredible guy. And uh, while we did these, these kind of things together, we found out that my results, this printout, you know, which reads your mail, tells you everything that you knew and didn't know about you, right? Mine read out some things, right? One of them was that I'm really good at change, okay? I actually navigate change quite well. In many ways, I kind of steer my life towards change, much to the peril of my suffering wife, right? Like, she, who hates change, right? But I love change. I kind of pursue it. In some ways, I need it. But amongst the things that I was really bad at 
One of them was weakness. It was vulnerability. It was that feeling of being not needed. Uh, it's why I'm a truly terrible sick person, right? I'm the worst sick person. I'm the worst injured person. That sense of like, I hate feeling like I need other people's help, right? And that was one of my weaknesses as it showed up. It's like that bit in the remake of Jumanji, which I know you've all seen, right? With The Rock, because everybody watches everything with The Rock in it, right? Where uh, Kevin Hart's character, uh, Franklin Moose Finbar, or he thinks it's Moose, but actually it's Mouse, right? He's like this tiny little guy. He hits the button to find out his strengths and his weaknesses, right? If you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. Like he does that, and it kind of pops up on the screen. And it lists strengths zoology and weapons valet, which really means he has a backpack. And then it says weaknesses, cake, I mean, lots of you can relate, speed, and finally strength, right? And then that line, how is it that strength is my weakness, right? And yet in our following of Jesus, very often, if we're really honest, strength is our weakness. Very often as we follow Jesus in the world in which we live, carrying whatever we're carrying, In the many walks of life that all of us represent, if we're really honest with ourselves, strength is our weakness. It's so often our competency, it's our professionalism, it's our gifts and abilities and talents and track records and our own resources that turn out to be our weakness. Because as we learn to rely on them, then how fruitful we are, how far we'll go, how fast we'll go becomes entirely reliant on how good I am. So often in life, our strength is our weakness. And it's not that surprising in many ways because that's exactly how the world around us deals, isn't it? It's how it seems to work. We celebrate the strong and the powerful and the talented and the fabulous life of and the influencers, right? We celebrate their gifts and their talents and their strength. Meanwhile, all the while, it just teaches us to hide our weakness, doesn't it? We hide it. We bury it. We don't talk about it. We don't reveal it. We do everything in our power to make sure that people see the strong side and not the weak side. So often, strength is our weakness. Sadly, the church does this too, doesn't it? If we're honest as we look at the church, the church does it too. We celebrate and gather around the strong churches, right? The big church metrics, the three Bs, okay, of budget, buildings, and bodies, right? That's the things we celebrate in the church very often, budgets, buildings, and bodies. Those are the places we want to gather around, right? And yet, Revelation seems to say something again and again and again. But those aren't Jesus' metrics for what sets the standards. To Jesus, it seems to be things like faithfulness and steadfastness and holding on. This is where the world's values, our values, come clashing into Jesus' values, isn't it? Very often in this kind of swing of strength and weakness. And so throughout the letters to the seven churches, right, there's this general trend that it's the big, stronger, wealthier churches that Jesus has the hardest words for, the most critique, the most comment on, and it's the weak ones that he commands. And I say that today because we, as we move to the church in Smyrna, right, this is a church with potentially the most difficult outlook of all of the seven churches that we're going to look at, where we don't read one single word of correction in what Jesus has to say. There's not a single word of correction. It's all commendation. And yet this is a church that was probably the weakest. 
The letter to the church in Smyrna is the second letter in Revelation. It's written to a city about 40 miles north of Ephesus, where we were last week, to another beautiful port city in the Aegean Sea, a city of around about 100,000 people. Today, it's the city of Izmir, uh, where the population is about 200,000 people. It's still incredibly beautiful. It's still a notorious kind of touristy place where people long to go and visit, because it's stunning, right? And one of the things that amazes me about Revelation again and again is though we have this look, this book that is so out there, right? It's so visual. It's so kind of, you know, it's a vision in the end of the day or a series of visions. And, and all of those very often are, are, are very visual, right? They're kind of these bizarre kind of pictures of different things along the way. And in some ways that means that we think about it at times as this kind of book that's like out there somewhere, you know, kind of floating above the surface of reality. But the truth is, that it speaks so straight to the big pains and the big aches and the big issues of human experience. Like the pictures are wild, right? But once we really read them, it speaks straight to the big pains and the big aches and the big issues of the human experience. And this week, frankly, in Smyrna, it's suffering and it's pain and it's death. And I can't really dress that up for you today, right? So if you were coming here for an uplifting sermon, I'm sorry that that may not have been the reading you were hoping to read this morning. I can't dress that up for you. And really, when I think about it, I probably shouldn't dress that up for you. Because Jesus is speaking to the real picture of a real city with real believers like you and I, and Jesus speaks straight to where they're at. And in the end of the day, right, we shouldn't dress that up. Because people still suffer around the world like these Christians suffered in Smyrna. And we shouldn't try to dress it up for them either. People in this room still suffer. You still struggle. You still have pain. You still have to deal with death in this life. And so we shouldn't dress it up. We should, as Jesus did, try to speak to it this morning, shouldn't we? So what's going on in this letter and how can we maybe read it and uh, and get something from it this morning? Well, to the church in Smyrna... This is a picture of poverty and persecution, but it's also a call to be faithful and fearless. The first thing is that it's a picture of poverty and persecution. So returning to Smyrna this week, and it's a big city on the coast. It's picture perfect, in fact, but it actually has a bit of an interesting story, okay? So around about 700 years before John is writing this letter to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna had been completely destroyed. Actually, along the way, it was destroyed a number of times by earthquakes and natural disasters and invasions and things like that. But about 700 years before uh, this letter was written, there was a serious kind of destruction of the city. It was totally destroyed. For 300 years, it lay completely in ruins. Until the people of the area decided to rebuild it. And so Smyrna in many ways had this reputation as a resurrection city, right? It was a place that had been destroyed and had been rebuilt to beauty out of ashes. It had this kind of idea of itself that it was a resurrection place. And the word Smyrna actually means bitter, okay? But the core of that word, okay, Smyrna, is the word more, okay? Which in Hebrew, it translates to the word myrrh in Greek of gold, frankincense, and myrrh fame, right? So myrrh, it's that that sweet-smelling herb. It's fragrant, however, only when it's crushed. And you need to bear that in mind as we kind of read through the rest of today's passage. It translates kind of roughly to myrrh, which is only fragrant, when it's crushed. 
And it was a place of status, right? It was so very beautiful, and it had kind of status in the region. Many within the Greek world knew it as the crown of Asia Minor, okay? That was the title that it had, as it was such a beautiful place, a place of high status and big wealth. And so the first question I asked whenever I started to read the passage was, how could it be in a place of so much wealth that there could be so much poverty and persecution? Because that's the first thing we read about the church in Smyrna. It's a really wealthy place. How come some people have got nothing? They've got so little, they're so destitute that they are literally starving. Well, this is what it says in verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Here's the kind of source, right? The immediate circumstances of the church in Smyrna was of suffering and death. And what appears to have happened at the time was that their income has been cut off by the Romans who were in charge so that they're living in real abject poverty, right? And this isn't very easy for us to read today, is it? Like any time we read, we watch, you know, the news coverage has been full in the last number of years of stories of refugees and dinghies making their way across from, from devastating circumstances to try and make it to the UK, lots of them not making it, not making it to France, all sorts of different circumstances there. Like, and and our, our kind of way that very often we do it is that like we can only take so much and then we change the channel, don't we? Like it's hard to look at, it's hard to read, it's hard to watch. And it's hard for us to read this about them today because the reality of the world in which we live is that by many commentators and historians and sociologists reckoning, we live in the most comfortable time in human history. We live in the most comfortable time in human history. We have the highest living standards at any time in the history of mankind with the easiest and the most convenient access to our material needs where technology and modern medicine, laws, and all the rest combine to make our everyday experience of life one which is comfortable, isn't it? Like there have been kings and emperors in history who haven't lived as comfortably as we do, right? That's the fact of the matter. We're comfortable. And so stories like this are hard to relate to and they're hard to understand. We struggle with them, don't we? We struggle with them. And the most devastating thing, the most devastating part of what's going on in this picture is that it's fellow Jews, it's not the Romans who are the source of the persecution and the poverty. The pain, it comes from the inside and not from the outside. So why on earth did that happen, right? Because that's the next logical question, okay? How did they become so very poor? Okay, well, it was the Jews, really, that, that caused it. So how on earth did that happen? Well, essentially what we're seeing are the effects of the struggle that, that's taking place inside Judaism at this particular time, not against Judaism, inside it, okay? The early church clung and they held on to the ancient Jewish kind of hopes and scriptures the way the Jews did too. After all, they didn't believe that Jesus had come to kind of write it all off and end it all and say that it was all untrue and incorrect and trash it and all of that, right? They believed that it was all true. They just believed that Jesus had fulfilled it. They believed it was all true. They just believed that Jesus had fulfilled it. And so in many ways, Christianity was, origin, was originally seen as this kind of little sect within Judaism, right? It was kind of part of the bigger thing. That's how it would have been perceived at the time. But more and more, as tensions grew between Christians and those who didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, it was beginning to be seen as distinct. It was beginning to stand alone out from the kind of wing of mainstream Judaism at the time. 
In a city of status and wealth and influence, part of what had happened was that the Jews had compromised with Rome, right? They compromised. They wanted status. They wanted wealth just as much as anybody else did. So what did they do to get it? They compromised. See, Caesar was seen as a god by some in that time, a demigod by others. But either way, he reckoned he was worthy of worship, okay? And the kind of group that did that was a group called the Imperial Cult, right? They worshipped Caesar. And as such, there were festivals and worship and sacrifices and all sorts of stuff that people made towards the empire, towards Caesar, because he was seen as a god. However, the Jews had managed to get an exemption from that along the way. And so they honored him not as a god, but they honored him as a ruler, okay? That was kind of the way that they got out of doing everything that everybody else was doing, was to just honor him. But I'm only going to honor you as a ruler. I'm not going to honor you as a god. But over time, over time, the distinction had started to fade. And the distinction had started to fade because they wanted power, influence, status, and wealth. They wanted the things that everybody else wanted. And so the distinction between their viewing him as a ruler and their viewing him as a god, over time, it had started to fade. It had started to fade. And so some of those within Judaism, they began to say that these Christians, they aren't a part of us, right? They say they are, and they think they're exempt like we are, but they're not a part of us. They're, they're, they're something else. They don't believe what we believe. We, we don't really even like them for what they believe. They began to tell Rome that Christians wouldn't honor Caesar and the Christians wouldn't compromise. And so their income was cut off. That was the first part. That's how they started to press them. Their income gets cut off. And then they begin to persecute them. And so we get this word in verse 9, afflictions, okay? That's what it says in the NIV that we're reading today. Your version could say tribulations or different things, right? But it's that word, afflictions. The word is actually this word. It's thlipsis in Greek, okay? That was, that, I mean, that was a mouthful trying to get that out there. Thlipsis, right? And the word in Greek is actually better translated as the word pressure, it's better translated, literally translated, as pressure. You see, poverty and persecution were actually because of pressure. They were because of pressure. Because this was the crushing, this was the pressing, this was the pressure felt by the church in Smyrna as their faith in Jesus comes up against faith in Caesar. This is the pressure lived in between these two forces that are being exerted on these believers' lives. It comes as we live between the kingdom of God and the empire of Rome. That's where the pressure was. That's why the poverty and the persecution took place because they lived constantly in the pressure between the kingdom and the empire. And it was a huge deal for believers of the time, right? Tradition tells us that, that as believers were baptized in the early church, they would come up out of the water. And as they came up out of water, the first thing they would say is this, Jesus is Lord. That's the first thing they would say. And this is a totally loaded thing to say at the time, right? Totally political in many ways because the common lingo of the time was to pay honor to Caesar through the phrase, Caesar is Lord. And yet these guys get baptized into a way that says Jesus is Lord. In other words, Jesus has control. Jesus has the honor. Jesus has the power. Jesus has the final say on my life. And to the person that believed that, they accepted no rivals and no other empires. 
This is what N.T. Wright says. It's impossible simultaneously to say that Jesus was raised from the dead and so is God's true Messiah, Israel's King and the world's true Lord and that he wasn't and isn't. Like these two things, these two statements, these two claims on my life, they aren't compatible. They're oil and water. They can't mix so the Christians wouldn't compromise. And so the result is pressure. It's pressure. You see, the choice to believe this and affirm this in the firing line of persecution, what we need to get, right, reading it now, what we read really is all the attention goes on death, right? They're going to kill you. They're going to kill you if you don't do this, that, or the other, right? They'd already chosen death. That's what we've got to get about the New Testament church. They'd already chosen death. For example, right, you know that the word for witness that we read so very often through the New Testament, it's, it's actually one of the values that we hold up here at church, worship, community, and witness, right? You know that word, that word actually comes from the Greek word marturia. It's the word we get martyr from. In other words, to be a witness for very many people of that time was to be a martyr. To be a witness was to choose the path of a martyr. It very frequently meant poverty, persecution, and worse. This wasn't a choice between life and death. They'd already chosen the way of death. But this was the pressure and the choice between Jesus and Rome, between the kingdom and the empire, and the Jews in Smyrna compromised, and Christians wouldn't bend. Christians wouldn't bend. And we follow Jesus, don't we? And as a result of following Jesus, we also live a life lived in pressure, isn't it? Constantly lived in pressure between the world and its claim and Jesus and his claim on our lives. We constantly live in the pressure between the world and the kingdom, don't we? And so the question is today, as we sit and as we read and as we stare straight at the church in Smyrna as it was, where do you compromise Where do we compromise? Because our lives are lived in pressure. They're lived in the pressure as we try to live faithfully for Jesus and live in the world, which is also exerting claims on our life, claims on our time, claims on our wallet, claims on our actions and our deeds and our life direction, claims on our vision and our dreams, claims on our purpose, claims on the direction of our lives. And Jesus claimed it all. We live in pressure. The question is today, where do we compromise? Where do we compromise? Paul has this kind of similar conversation with the church in Rome, in Romans 2. And the argument at that point is all about kind of their inness, you know, are you really in or are you not? And it gets into like, you know, they're into like rituals at this point. Well, I've had this done, so I must be in, right? And they're kind of having this back and forth, okay, between rituals and laws uh, inside the Jewish faith who have all the labels and all the marks, but they don't live like it. They've compromised. And so Paul says to them here in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 2, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. In other words, Paul says the true Jew is one who's Jewish in the heart. And in the pressure between the kingdom and the world that the church in Smyrna lived in and that we live in today in different circumstances, in different ways, right? 
where we constantly are led and tempted to compromise, right? The ones who won't bend are the ones who have Jesus in the heart. The ones who have him in the heart. We are to be Jesus in the heart. If we're ever going to live in the pressure between the world and the kingdom, between Jesus and his way and the way of everything and everyone else, if we're going to live in that world and not compromise, not bend, then we're going to need to be Jesus in the heart. Firstly, this is a picture of pressure, of poverty and persecution, but also it was a call to live faithful and fearless. This is a call to live faithful and fearless. This is what it says as we read on in verse 10. Do not be afraid of all that you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Advertising today is an incredibly powerful thing, isn't it? Uh, it's normally about marketing. It's normally about something or some service or uh, something that somebody somewhere is trying to make you buy, right? But it's an incredibly powerful thing. I was having a conversation with Joy one day in the house, and we were saying, oh, you know, we must go and get Elle some new shoes. And so we had this conversation, and I said, oh, well, I'll, I'll go to Clark's later on, right? I'm going to work. I'll go to Clark's at lunchtime, see what's in there, see what they're like. And we have this conversation, and we're like, oh, we like patent once, right? Like that, that sort of thing. So we have this back and forth and I'm like right that's fine I walk I get on the bus I open up my phone I go on social media and the first targeted advert in Facebook is for patent kids shoes and Clark's right I'm like how how do they get all this we've turned all the like turn your microphone settings off all that sort of stuff but still somehow they know they're trying to get you to buy something most of the time But generally, that's kind of the way they are these days. But once upon a time, advertising was about a whole host of things. Most of you, you know, most of you don't pick up newspapers anymore, right? You probably don't even know what they are. It's the thing they wrap your chips in, right? Um, But newspapers, once upon a time, when I was growing up, they had classifieds. Like, I might remember my first bike whenever I was a kid was a secondhand bicycle bought from the classifieds in the Belfast Telegraph, right? And everything was there, things you might buy, you know, gardeners, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And then you would have your kind of deaths and, you know, all this sort of stuff, announcements of marriages and everything. You would have lots going on in the advertisement section of a newspaper. It had everything. And over some time, uh, different publications have tried to pull together the greatest advertisements of all time into one place, right? And if you look at those articles very consistently, one thing, one advert seems to show up in them all, right? And it's this one written from uh, the year 1900 uh, by the the explorer Ernest Shackleton. And this is what it says. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success, Ernest Shackleton, Burlington Street. I mean, in today's day and age, you're like, sign me right up, right? Like, nobody is taking that advert. Apparently, he had a phenomenal reply, right? At the time, loads of people took that. I mean, what is wrong with people in the year 1900 that you're going to get involved with that, okay? But they did. And the incredible thing about this advert and the reason why it shows up in these kind of advert listing things all the time is there's just no hiding the reality, is it? Like he doesn't pat it out. He doesn't try to like say nice things about the mission that you're going to be going on. He just gives it to you straight, right? He gives it to you straight. And the thing is, it seems that to the church in Smyrna, Jesus pretty much does exactly the same. 
Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. It's the plain language of it all, isn't it? And the quick translation of what he's saying is this. Things are going to get worse. Things are going to get worse. Like these people already live in poverty. They're destitute and they're dying. Like things are pretty bad already. But Jesus is saying, right guys, get ready. Because things are going to get worse. And I think the interesting thing in this part of the passage is all the things Jesus doesn't say, right? Like look at all the things that he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm going to fix it. He doesn't say, don't worry guys, I'm going to get you out of it. He doesn't say, I'm going to take it away. He doesn't say, I'm going to make it easy. He doesn't do any of that. He confirms to them that they're going to suffer. He just confirms that they're going to suffer. And the thing is that in the world we live in today, which is usually measured by our comfort and our personal happiness and our freedom and choice, suffering doesn't really have any point in the world in which we live. At least that's how it's seen, generally speaking. It's just seen as something that we need to get out of, right? We just, just, just push it away, get rid of it, right? We, we don't want to suffer. It doesn't do any good. So we just do whatever we can to make sure that it doesn't happen or get rid of it when it does. Tim Keller writes this, in the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. And then he goes on in the same book to say this, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we've worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. We can't run from suffering, can we? No matter how hard we try, Like there's no motivational quote out of suffering, right? If you're suffering right now, in fact, motivational quotes are that things that are like, get out of it, like you stuff it, right? It's like when you're having a bad time and someone sends you one, that's normally where you swear a bit, right? Where you compromise your testimony, okay? That's the truth, right? But it's such a big, plain part of what it is to be human. Suffering is as human as it gets, and, and I mean, even if we're honest on some general level, right, suffering is an everyday thing, right? We all live in the pain of aging. I know most of you are like 20 and beautiful, so you haven't considered it yet, right? But we all live with the pain of aging in our lives, right? We all used to get, you know, get used to living with things sagging the way they didn't used to, with failing eyesight, with injuries, with things like bereavement, which comes your way the older that you get, with medicating ourselves to live the lives that we live, don't we? There's just some general level of grief about life, isn't there? Because we all suffer in this life. We don't see any point to it, though. But the thing is, that hasn't always been the case in history, right? For generations, it was a way that was seen of building capacity in people's lives, a way to see ourselves and to see the world more truly very often came through suffering. And revelation, okay, as we were talking about last week, as this work of apocalypse and prophecy and pastoral letter, right? Revelation on some level is all about peeling back life as we see it and live it and experience it. John saw something in the end of the day, something transcendent. And the whole idea with revelation is that we might see what he saw and see as he did. And in so doing, 
we might see the true reality of the world that we live in, of Jesus' sin in our lives. And the reality is, no one needed to see that more than the church in Smyrna. Nobody needed life peeled back to see some transcendent reality behind the reality that they were living in, to see the true picture of the world. Nobody needed to see that quite so much as the church in Smyrna at that time. I have read uh, quite a few cycling autobiographies over the years. I love cycling, and so obviously whenever you start into things like that, you then get interested in other people who have done it. So I've read quite a few autobiographies. And it appears as you read more of them, right, that the psychology of cycling really is just the psychology of suffering, right? The more it goes on, the more you realize, right? Fausto Coppi, who many consider to be the greatest one of them all, he is, by the way, the person that, you know, that Belfast restaurant was named after, right? That's why, if you've ever wondered, there's like cycling handlebars around the walls and all that, because Coppi was a cyclist. He was one of the greatest ever, okay? Uh, and Coppi used to say, right, he's famously quoted as saying, cycling is suffering, Right? Uh, and one of the greatest of them all was an Irishman called Sean Kelly. This is him. Right? Look at this guy. Like, I mean, he has carried half the mud of France around on his face. Uh, I love how like, clean his mouth is, by the way. That's my favorite part. That's the only thing I can look at when he's here. This is him, right? Sean Kelly is a famously hard man, right? He's one of the hardest guys ever, right? He came from rural Irish upbringing. He won just about everything in his era of cycling. The classics, which is what this race is taken from, are all done you know, in the autumn when the weather's miserable and it's in like France and Belgium and all of that stuff. And so the races very often look like this, like people have died in the classics. That's how hard they are. It was very common for people to lose fingers and toes to frostbite in the early days, right? You had to be a hard man. And Kelly was the hardest man of them all, okay? I mean, just for example, look at his legs, right? Just look at it. I mean, look at those. The, uh, the other thing I love too is, right, this guy's at the top of his game and his shoes are held together by duct tape, right? I love that, right? But it's the legs are the gnarliest legs ever, right? Joy thinks they're boke. I think they're incredible, right? Just, just like slight side note, right? Sean Kelly, the hardest man ever, right? Once quit the Vuelta, which is like the, the Spanish Tour de France, okay? He quit it while in the lead two days before the finish because he had a really, and I quote, really bad saddle sore. Now, how bad did it have to be, right? Are we talking like atomic undercarriage? Like, I don't know, okay? It haunts me in my sleep. I, not, that, not that you understand I have dreams about other people's undercarriage, right? But think about how bad that must have been for the hardest man ever to quit while in the lead two days before the finish. He did. So he knows loads about suffering. An interview later in his life, he would say this. In the classics, you may be suffering after five hours and still have an hour and a half to go. And in the grand tours, you have to survive weeks of it. So it helps if you have ways of coping. For example, I used to say to myself, everybody else is suffering as well. And a good many are probably suffering more. I used to convince myself of that and it helped. And I say that today. Because the more you read kind of sports psychologists talking about suffering and people that talk about suffering in all sorts of ways of life again and again and again, they will say the same thing, that it's all about what you tell yourself as you go through suffering. In other words, it's all about perspective. Suffering is all about perspective. And that's what's going on here too, to the church in Smyrna. Jesus says it's going to get worse 
But it's going to last for 10 days. This is Revelation again, so we've got to think that that's not very likely a literal term, right? It's more likely a picture or an idea of a short period of time, okay? Other kind of commentators and people along the years have thought that maybe it represents the rule of 10 emperors who would be kind of oppressive towards Christians, which is also possible. But either way, right, he's saying you're going to suffer, and it's going to be bad, But what he's saying is the suffering is real, but the suffering is limited. Suffering's real, and it's going to be bad, but it's limited. It's limited. And the I know that he says again in verse 9, right? If you've been following over the last couple of weeks, he keeps saying this. Jesus keeps saying to the church, I know, I know, I know, I see you. He keeps saying it again and again, right? He won't let that one drop. He knows. He won't look away like we do. Whenever we see and and we look at things that we can't stomach anymore and we look away, Jesus won't look away. He's right there. It's going to be bad, but it's going to be limited. And so do not be afraid. Be faithful, he says to them. And the thing is, though, that if we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, death and suffering are exactly what we're afraid of, aren't they? Like in the Western world, death is still one of these taboo subjects, isn't it? We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to look at it. Every so often it comes looking for us. But we don't want to. We don't want to think about it. If we're really honest, death and suffering are exactly what we're afraid of. We are that family, okay, with with our daughter Elle, that we, we kind of made a decision early on. Elle's very kind of switched on in terms of thinking and talking and all of that stuff. And we decided early on that we would just never lie to her. And so obviously in the last couple of years, as she navigated losing her, her nanny, she, had to, she started to ask questions about death and dying and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, the conversations in our house were truly uplifting, right? But she started to ask questions about death and dying. And we wouldn't fudge it for her, right? We didn't make things up. We told her it as it was. And so then you could see the cogs turning, which is like everyone dies, right? That means you're going to die, mom and dad. It's like, yeah, it does. And that means I'm going to die. It's like, yeah, it does. And so we had these massive conversations. And so Elle is now that child, right, that when anything comes up, she, like, she tells people, okay? So her nanny, her nanny and granddad arrived in the house one day, and they come in through the door, and she's like, Nana Pampa, you're going to die. <laughs> and they're just like, right, Joy's dad being the incredibly gracious man, and he's like, that's right, love, and come on and I tell you. And then he, he sits down and talks to her, right? Most people would be like, oh, what's going on here, right? But she just comes straight out with it. So we're that house, right? We're like, you know, ruining, ruining people's Christmases with the no Santa chap on a whole other level, right? Elle is that person running around telling people they're going to die, okay? But anyway, the thing is, though, death's a box that we don't like to open very often, isn't it? It's the most certain part of our reality in this life and that very often we kind of just shut it off and we put it somewhere until the box opens when someone dies or when someone we love gets a bad health diagnosis or when we get a diagnosis that we don't like to hear and then the box is open and then it's urgent and then we don't know what to do with it. But the thing is though for us in our experience with Elle, Because the death box opened, because it became a question in her life, so too did the eternity box open. Because now we get to talk about something and it becomes a very real reality to her all of a sudden. She's also that kid going around when people say, oh, such and such is an angel in heaven. No, they're not. And she like just straight up tells them, right, no, they're not. Jesus is coming back again, right? And she just just goes for it, right? 
Because the death box opens, so did the eternity box. And so too has the Jesus box opened in her life. And how much does that need to be in our life too? I think because the death thing is just in a box for us and we don't like to open it and we don't like to go there and we don't like to look at it. Very often, actually, if we're honest, eternity and heaven and all of that stuff, it's in a pretty similar box too and we don't really think about it and occasionally we kind of dip in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, I suppose, yeah, that's going to be okay, right? We like open that up when it suits us. And then if we're really honest, so too does the Jesus box sometimes too. Like we forget about the reality of his presence, of his knowing, of his with us in our struggles, in our pain, in our suffering. Maybe we need to open those a little bit more. Don't be afraid. Be faithful, he says. And the thing is, sometimes if we're honest, the fear of what, uh, the fear of death, the fear of suffering has got a hold on us greater than the reality itself, doesn't it? That's the other thing. It's not just about the reality of suffering and pain and dying and all that stuff. It's the fear of it too. It's the fear of the worst, the fear of rejection, the fear of being alone, the fear of failing, the fear of what, of, of what yours, it takes root in your life. It kills more than the reality, right? And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Be faithful and you'll receive the crown of life. And the thing is for the people in Smyrna, right? A crown was a pretty common, commonly known thing for those people. They talked about it loads. The city itself, as we said, was known as the crown of Asia Minor. The beautiful houses that were on the hills, the ones that everybody wanted to own at the time, they were also known as crowns. The garlands that were given out for the victors in the games that they held, right? Garlands that you wore on your head, like a crown. City officials and people that did well. If the city did well and Rome recognized it, they also, guess what? Got garlands that you wore like crowns. Crowns were just a thing. So what, was this just another crown? And if it is just another crown in a city full of crowns, then what good is it? How does that help me in my pain and in my suffering? Here's the thing. It's all about perspective. Because if our goal in life is just to be comfortable, then this isn't a comforting crown. If our goal is to be happy, then this crown, it isn't happy news. If our goal is to be successful, then how on earth will this crown help? If our goal is to be recognized, then this isn't going to get you that. This crown might not be good news, but it all depends on the way that you see. It all depends on your perspective. Because if your goal is Jesus, and he has your gaze, He's the one you're walking toward. He's the one you're walking with. He's the one you're longing for. Then living in the pressure that we do between Jesus' claim and every other claim and living faithfully to the end to receive the crown, the gift that he gives, then this is news worth living and dying for. And that's what the church in Smyrna, even in the suffering, saw. When they saw what John saw, they saw the crown because he was their goal, because they wouldn't bend, because they wouldn't compromise, because he had their all. And because that's what they saw, this was incredibly good news. Death, Jesus says, I'm the first and I'm the last. I went that way and you'll be okay. 
And the second death that he speaks of in verse 11, right? Judgment at the end for those who consciously and deliberately choose not to know him or not to have anything to do with him. Whatever that looks like, and we don't have time to get into all of that sort of big stuff today, right? But whatever that looks like, Jesus says, you don't need to worry about that either because you have followed me faithfully to the end. You'll wear the crown and not get the judgment. It's that weak, strong thing again, isn't it? My mom uh, died in the spare room of our house, our mom and dad's house with her family all around her when she passed. And in the weeks leading up to that point, she had went downhill really pretty rapidly. She'd lost a lot of weight. She'd been suffering an awful lot. And then even by the end, she didn't really look like herself. She couldn't speak and she was very weak. In the light of the laughter that had so decorated her life and all of our lives as her kids, right? That wasn't there anymore. We didn't hear it. The glint wasn't in her eye anymore. And it was so very hard to watch. The temptation when it's you is to look away. Is you don't really want to bear it. And yet in those moments, and even now, whenever I think about that, when I looked at her, I'd never seen her or thought her more beautiful than she was in those moments. I'd never thought her stronger than she was at her weakest. I'd never thought her more courageous. I'd never thought she cared, or I'd never thought that she had had so much dignity in her life. I'd never thought of her with so very much grace as she had in those moments. And I had never been more proud of her than I was right then. And then I think about the crown and how Jesus looked at those people in Smyrna, how they suffered and they were persecuted and they died. And I say to myself, now I get it. Now I get it. Now I get how he could look at those so very weak, so very destitute, with nothing. How he looks at you as you suffer and you endure and you're faithful to the end. How he looks at you, never more proud, never thinking you more beautiful, never thinking you with more dignity or worth or courage. And then I get what that crown is all about. This is a picture of poverty and persecution, of life lived in pressure in Smyrna. The question to them as it is to us today is where do we compromise as we live in pressure? What do we compromise in our life? Who do we compromise? How do we compromise? And this is a call to live faithfully and to live fearlessly. And the question is and will always be, where is your perspective in the times when you suffer. Because if it's just that you want to live a life that's fruitful in your eyes, that's successful, that's popular, that's comfortable, then stories like this, they're not particularly good news. But if your longing is for Jesus and his way and his will in your life, then this is incredible news in the life of a church that lived through profound suffering.